We're going to talk about uh, using thankfulness, putting on thankfulness to put envy to death. Uh, we had a practical demonstration of envy today at lunch. Our family, our extended family comes over for lunch, and uh, my wife, Yodi, has a uh, boo-boo bear. And uh, this is when one of the kids has an accident. They get this little ice pack. Now, it's called Boo Boo Bear for historical reasons, because the original Boo Boo Bear did not survive uh, the process that I'm about to describe, which is that if, any, if one of the three, the three young grandchildren has a Boo Boo, then everyone else is envious of the privilege of getting Boo Boo Bear. That's, that's how the original Boo Boo Bear got destroyed. And now we have these little square ice packs with puppies on them, still called Boo Boo Bear, however. Um, and today, you know, one of the kids had some kind of accident, and, you know, that's the comfort. Give you a boo-boo bear. Oh, thank you. Yes, that feels much better. And, but the others are just staring, just staring and crying. Why can't I have? And, of course, eventually managed to manufacture some sort of injury so that it's my turn to have boo-boo bear. Honey has two of them. She doesn't let on that she has two. So in case of an emergency, she actually can cover it. But... Uh, that's, in a nutshell, folks, that is envy. There are two-year-olds. We understand two-year-olds, but let me tell you, there are a lot of 32-year-olds and a lot of 72-year-olds who are still in that same place, or can be, if Satan works it right, can put us right back in that same spot. Envy. And envy is a soul leader. It's a, it's a peace killer. It, 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 eats away at what should be a joyous life. Uh, Proverbs 14.30, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Isn't that great? I mean, isn't that an accurate image of what we're talking about? Because I, it's not that any, I've lost anything. I've got everything that I have had to start with. It's just seeing someone else who I imagine has more than me or something different than I have, and all of a sudden, whatever it is I've got is unsatisfactory to me because envy gets its hooks into my brain. It gets its hooks into my heart, and it rots the bones. It rots the bones. It makes me feel like what I have is worthless, what I have is no good, and that God is not being good to me. I want to talk about different kinds of envy tonight, and there are a lot, obviously. Uh, but it is, it is just one of these sins that just kind of uh, eats us up. Um, possession envy. I think thankfulness is our antidote for the envy of possession. Boo-boo bear is an example of very simple possession envy, but there are lots and lots of forms of that. In fact... It's difficult to imagine the American economy or the Western European economy running without at least a heavy dose of envy, right? I want what you've got. I don't even know what that little thing you're holding does, but I want it. I don't even know what it would be like to drive the car that you're driving, but I feel like it must be better than what I have. I want it. I don't know what it would be like to live in the house you live in, but I want it. Possession envy. Possession envy. 
If you read the Ten Commandments, I, I think sometimes of the Sesame, Seeds, uh, Sesame Street song, you know, uh, one of these things is not like the others. Right? If you read, read the last six of the commandments, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false... I mean, those make a lot of sense, right? Those are, any moral code that's trying to govern human beings, given the way human life works, you've got to say, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. You've got to say... And then we got this one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, or his donkey, or ox, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Why? That's so weird. I'm not hurting you by envying what you have, and yet it makes the top ten list of sins. Why? Because it has this power to take away our happiness, to take away our joy, and to take away our thankfulness to God. I have everything that I had to start with, and yet now I'm miserable. Because I'm imagining what you have is somehow better than what I have. And so the Ten Commandments say, just don't do it. I like what Hebrews says about this. There are lots of passages we could go to. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what human beings can do to me. Uh, that's really the antidote to envy. That mindset that Hebrews is talking about there in the last chapter is really the antidote to envy. If... I am in the zone that says, at least subconsciously, my well-being depends on my possessions, that I'm set up for envy. If I can get myself into the zone and keep myself there through prayer and worship and meditation on God, uh, the zone that says, my well-being depends on God. And the fact that God loves me, and that God has worked this incredible salvation for the world, and in my particular life, He's worked an incredible salvation. And God is on my side, and that's where my well-being comes from. As long as I can do that, I will protect myself from envy. I have to spend my time meditating on the fact that God has saved me, and that God is with me. I have to spend my time giving thanks for what God is doing for me. Not just the stuff that he gives me, although we should be thankful for that too, but for the fact that he's in my life at all. It would have been so easy from a human point of view for me to be astray from God, to be alienated from God, to be gone from God, and to be headed for destruction, to be headed to hell. And yet God has worked salvation in my life. And I need to keep bringing myself back to that. I mean, that's, that's our antidote for envy. Uh... One of the worst stories about envy we've got in the Bible, and there are a lot of bad ones, is the story of King Ahab. If you go to, you don't have to turn to this one. You can just mark it if you want to. First Kings chapter 21. King Ahab is a pretty terrible person anyway. He's just weak in so many levels. He marries the wrong woman. So, you know, 
When a bad person marries another bad person, it just becomes super bad. And that's what happens in the case of Ahab and Jezebel. But Ahab is possessed of immense wealth. He's the king. He has lots and lots of wealth. And you remember the story of Kings 21. In spite of everything that he has, there's this one Israelite over there who's got an adjoining vineyard, Naboth. And Ahab literally makes himself sick. He goes home and he just faces the wall. He won't talk. He won't eat. You know, he's just pouting. The king of Israel, with all that he has, none of it's worth anything because Naboth won't sell him. He can't get his hands on Naboth's vineyard. And, of course, things go from bad to worse from there. Envy does that. Because then, of course, Jezebel arranges for the assassination or the the judicial murder of Naboth, and Ahab is able to take the vineyard in. And that actually is what's mentioned when the prophet comes and says, you're going to die, she's going to die, you're all going to die, because of Naboth and the things like that that you've done. Envy does that. It gets its hooks into us. We should be happy. We should be dwelling in the blessings that God has given us, giving thanks for those, and instead it pulls us down and makes what we do have unpleasant to us as we just meditate and fill our mind instead on what we don't have. That's possession envy. Another kind of envy is status envy. And, and, and this one's a little more abstract, but I think it's real, and I think it's talked about in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 6. If you're following along, you can turn over there. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 6. The writer of Ecclesiastes is, is not writing, I mean, he's trying to understand the world, you know, if there isn't a God and if there isn't an afterlife, what's that like? And uh, he describes various things. He says, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 6, I saw that all the toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. And this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing uh, after the wind. There it is in Ecclesiastes, 3,000 years before Gordon Gekko said, greed is good, greed works. There it is in the book of Ecclesiastes. A lot of people's effort, a lot of people's uh, industry. A lot of what they do is not because they're trying to make something good to praise God, but because they want to get ahead of whoever they're envious of. Isn't that, isn't that sad? And the writer, who himself, if it's Solomon, which we think at least partly it is, if it's all, uh, the writer has done amazing things, built incredible buildings, amassed enormous wealth, and he's talking about his own soul. I did a lot of this just because of jealousy of the people around me or, or worry that they might get ahead of me. Or, and that's what drove a lot of what's going on. Status envy. Envy that somebody is going to get more than I'm going to get. You see status envy hurting relationships within families. As, you know, brothers and sisters kind of we call it sibling rivalry sometimes. It can get very poisonous. We're worried about, you know, mom loved you better than she loved me or gave you more than she gave me or is more concerned about you 
than me. Or it can, lots of other ways in which it, 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 it can come in and poison what we have. And, and in each case, what it's doing is saying what you already have been given by God is not enough. Because here's a person who has more or different than what you have. And so it takes away our joy. What's the solution? What's the solution? The solution is to get back to that place that says, my joy, my blessing comes first of all from my relationship with God. And everything else has to be evaluated in light of that. Yeah, there may be people out there who for right now have more or different than I have. I'm concerned about being related to God. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, you know, if someone thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, to have religious status, if they think they can put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul just laid out an enviable set of status markers within the Hebrew religion, within the Jewish religion. To be able to claim what Paul just claimed and to be telling the truth puts you in the top, 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 top tier of the Jewish religion of the first century. See, that's who I am. And what does he say about it? What does he say about it? Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 and following. Verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I know that those status games kind of drive some of what's going on in the Jewish religion, And I fear that those status games will now come in and try to infect this new Christian movement. And people will try to impose those status games on what's going on here in Christianity. He says, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Those things, I have all of that. I don't care at all if I can just be connected to Christ. So, in your family, there are people who have more, who have different, who have... Uh, maybe success, uh, maybe what you consider to be more happiness in one relationship or another, that's going to happen. Where does your joy come from? Where does it come from? If you want to be armored against envy and the destructive force of envy, then again and again you've got to go back and give thanks to God. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you've made me part of this kingdom. Thank you for what you have given me. I receive it with gladness. If you give me more, I'll receive that with gladness too. And if you don't give me more, then I will be grateful for what I have right now because you are in my life. That's really the armor that we have against our envy of people's possessions or against our envy of people's status. I want to talk about a third kind of envy. And this is even more abstract. It's really weird, but the Bible talks about it. 
And this is envy of sin. Envy of the sinful. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 73. This is a whole psalm dedicated to envy of the sinful people. There's some others as well, but Psalm 73, the whole psalm is about this. Envy of the sin, sinful. There's a writer from the 60s, Erica Zhang, who said, Jealousy is all the fun you think they're having. That, that's pretty good. That's not bad. It is, at least when it comes to being envious of those who are not on God's path, who are outside of God's kingdom, and saying, I bet they're having more fun than I am. It is imagining, you don't know, of course, it is imagining their life as better than yours so that you make yourself less happy than you need to be. And that's really what Psalm 73 is about. It's an interesting psalm. More detail here than maybe anywhere else in the Bible about this particular disease of the soul. Envy of sin. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He says, I know God's good, but I'm going to tell you about a struggle I had. I'm going to tell you about a spiritual trial that I went through. And here it is, verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the sinful. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up water in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth, surely in vain. And this is the sad part, verse 13, if you're following along. He says, that's what the wicked are like. Now, he's imagining what they're like. He does not know. But he's magnifying their happiness and their prosperity. And then he says this in verse 13, and this is the hook. Surely in vain. Surely it is useless, in other words, that I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I'm afflicted. And every morning, brings new punishments. In other words, I'm suffering, I'm poor, perhaps, I'm ill, perhaps, my relationships aren't going well, perhaps. I look at people who are outside of Christ, people who are not concerned at all with what Christ wants out of their lives, who've just thrown off the traces of God and are just living however they want to, and they're arrogant and they're wealthy, and as far as I can tell, they're happier than I am, and 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 it's killing me. That's what... That's what the first part of Psalm 73 is saying, right? The Bible is not just happy, pious land, right? I mean, it gets down to the nitty-gritty of what it's really like to be afflicted by some of these temptations and some of these sins. And that's what the writer's just describing for us. Says, this is what it felt like. I look at them, and I imagine how happy they are, and, and, I, and, and it's about to kill me. It's about to trip up my whole relationship with God. Look down in verse 22 and 23 as, as the writer describes just a little bit more of what that's like. 
When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, I I was foolish. I was fooling myself. I was like an ignorant animal uh, as I imagined how happy they were. In other words, he says, I know I was wrong, but it was such a seductive wrong. There's something that feels sort of bittersweet about imagining the happiness of people who aren't me and using that to make myself feel miserable. Oh, if only I didn't have the obligations of Jesus Christ. Oh, if only I didn't have to worry about the judgment. If only I didn't have to worry about what God wants in my life. Imagine how happy I could be. And to make myself sick, to make myself miserable, by imagining what's not even real in the first place, as he kind of is alluding to in verses 21 and 22. I know it was all fake, but I was, it was making me miserable. Now, he, Psalm 73 is one of those where you get the, you get the dissonance, the, the trouble with faith, and then you get the restoration movement. And that's what starts in verse 15. If you're following along, look at verse 15. 73 verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have, Betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. That's great. That right there is awesome theology. So there I was. I, 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 in, in one part of my mind at least, I kind of knew I was trapped in an illusion, but I didn't know how to get out of it. What saved this person? What saved this person? What helped me get my head back straight again was going back to the sanctuary of God. I got to get back into worship. I got to get back into thanksgiving. I got to get back into praise. And not just me alone. I got to be with the people who are worshiping, with the people who are giving thanks, with the people who are giving God praise. I got to get back into the sanctuary of God. That's how I can get my head clear of all of this illusion. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny, the destiny of the wicked. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away with terrors. They are like a dream when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That's the first solution to the problem of sin envy is to recognize, yeah, but God really is the judge. And the destiny of the wicked, whatever pleasures you think they're having, whatever joys you think they're having, and that's an illusion anyway, whatever, it, it's very short-lived because God is the judge. God is expecting something of human life. And if I throw away my life uh, without serving God, then I am facing utter and complete ruin. Then the writer says there's another part of the solution as well. Look at verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven except you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my 
refuge, I will tell of all your deeds. In other words, it helped me to go back to the sanctuary, to be back with people who praise God, who thank God, who try to do what God wants to do. And, 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 and that helped me to understand the destiny of the wicked, but it also helped me get back into the joy of being with God. By being with those who worship God, by being with those who thank God, it helped me to remember what's really important, and that is that I have God. And when I'm clear-headed, when I'm thinking properly, I know that there is nothing you could offer me where I would say, oh yeah, I'd rather have that than God. There's nothing you could... There's no amount of money. There's no amount of possessions. There's no amount of pleasant experiences in this life that you could offer me when I'm thinking clearly and I'd say, oh yeah, that's way better than God. There's nothing that's better than God. There's nothing that's better for me than to be right now with God and to be with God into eternity. And the writer knows that. And that's what he's saying. That helped me get my head back to where it needed to be. It helped me get my thoughts back to where it needed to be. When I let myself go down the envy path, I was miserable and I was foolish and I was nearly ready to let my foot slip. What he means is slip back into sin. But when I came back to sanctuary, when I came back to worship, when I came back to God's people, then I was able to get myself clear. And I was able to understand God is my joy. I give thanks to God and I can put envy to death within me. If you need to respond to the invitation of God, we offer it week after week, sermon after sermon. God is, through Jesus Christ, made a path for you. Whatever is wrong in your life, Jesus Christ is what can set it right because the blood of Christ can wash away what's past and set you on the path for the future. If you need to respond tonight to ask for baptism, to to begin a new life by having your sins washed away, or if you need to ask for prayers or help of some kind, why don't you come forward as we stand and are led in song.